0: From the Air Age, through the Missile Age, and into the Age of Space. Our Space Age heritage of knowledge is older than a decade, older than a century, older than a millennium. Our scientific knowledge has evolved through the ages concurrently with the minds of men. Our capacity to learn has expanded in the process. The challenging idea of exploring beyond our planetary boundaries is as old as history, probably as old as humanity itself.
1: To the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area, as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and join me, as always, is...
2: Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance at Paranoid Futures on all the places. Uh, you can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible.
1: Joining us today on The Cinematic Void podcast is one of our favorite musicians ever. Well, obviously, because she was the architect behind the, more or less, the Cinematic Void theme song Astros. Her current project is Death Hags, so please welcome to The Void, Lola G. How you doing, Lola?
3: I am good. How are you? Thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. So this has been a long time coming because we've talked about over the years trying to do a Death Hags live show at at the Void. And we sort of did it during the pandemic with a music video. But the thing is, I'm indebted to you because of that song that I can't ever not play at Cinematic Void. So, but I figured we were talking about doing the podcast and you're like, I don't want to do a traditional interview thing. So I was like, instead of that, we're going to do something a little bit more fun, which is I let you pick the theme and then the movies we're going to talk about. So this is going to be the Lola show today, but it's a good thing because like, honestly... I don't think we would have, well, maybe Nick would, because Nick's gotten deep into Criterion titles as of late. So I, he might have picked some of these. And we did talk about one of these. When we'll get to that when we get to that one. But your pitch was old and new, weird sci-fi. Why that subject?
3: Well, I was trying, actually, I I was trying to find uh, films where the environment is the main character. Like, where, like, the... There's no, I mean, there's obviously main characters, but the environment plays a real, a huge character role, and I guess one of them is not really doesn't really fit in there, but the other three I think are, you know, of the same kind. But yeah, they're all movies that I really liked, and two of them, I mean, okay, so one of them is one of my all-time favorites.
1: Oh, do we have to guess which one it is?
3: Um, I would. Which one are we starting with?
1: We're starting with the 1979 Russian.
3: The film, all-time favorite of mine, Stalker.
1: Andre Tarkovsky, who's now kind of gotten a new wind, as of late, because when I saw Stalker, Stalker on the on your list, it just kind of reminded me that the last few years that we showed Eddie Tarkovsky, we've been nearly selling out when we've been doing him.
3: Oh, really? That's yeah. cool. Yeah.
1: We did a series of a bunch of restorations. We did Stalker in like the, at the Egyptian which seats about 600. We pretty much sold it out. Which, you know, a few years ago I don't think that would happen. We might have done 150, 200, but like Tarkovsky's now he's the he's the hot filmmaker in the rep art house scene, I guess.
3: Is it um did Criterion do like a thing, right? I like didn't... a
1: I think they did a restoration because, like, Stalker was the big one. Solaris, which I used to think was probably considered a little bit bigger, right. at least rep house wise, because everyone, you know, kind of went to it because of its 2001 ishness, even though it's not really like that movie. But right. it it ended up being Stalker was the big hit. All the actually all all the films because we did Solaris and I forget some of the other ones we did, but like they all did really really well. Which is really interesting because, one, this movie has no dialogue for the first 10 minutes. (laughs) Two, it's 163 minutes. And it only includes 142 shots.
3: But they're all beautiful, though. They are. All paintings, you know, so. I guess that's part of why it's in my favorite movies. Because every shot is a painting and a poem.
1: I'm going to assume, because you were talking about you picked film, sci-fi movies that had to deal with environments. And the main thing with Stalker is that, you know, there's the zone, which is kind of a kind of forbidden area that people want to get in there because there's you know, all these rooms within that are supposed to unlock innermost desires and things like that. I find it interesting because like, I didn't realize the theme until I started looking and doing notes on this. like, oh, it is environmental. Why didn't I not think about it when I was just... (laughs) It, it it took me to phase four to figure out. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is the theme.
2: The uh, the book uh, the book is more slanted towards like alien not not alien invasion, but you know there's alien stuff that touched down. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's very very different than the book. I think that's it's interesting in that way. The way that the, the characters that are going to the zone um, that aren't the stalker or even the stalker really, they don't have names. You know, they're the writer. The, the Professor, uh, much like another film we're going to talk about in, in a little bit.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, I was trying to do them, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a
1: really good set. I, I was, look, it's a good set of four films and two bonus ones that we'll get to, too. You know, it's a really epic film and like its scope and all that. Like all Tarkovsky's films are like that. They're all, yeah. they're the epitome of slow burns. Although I don't even know if they really burn, they're just like, it's just art unfolding. It doesn't really catch a fire but like by the time you're done you're just like what did i just experience which is like you know probably one of the purest forms of cinema
3: yeah exactly it's like you go to a different world you go in the zone for like two yeah it's two hours and 40 minutes or something yeah it's crazy
1: now the most interesting thing about it is that the screenplay was written by the people that wrote the book it was based on which was I'm going to mispronounce their names badly. Sorry, Russian friends. Um, Boris and Arkady Strugoski? But the, the book was called Roadside Panic, and I know they worked on the screenplay too, and my understanding is when they were shooting the movie, they ran an issue because they were using a film stock that wasn't really common in Russia at the time, and when they took it to the lab, the lab basically fucked up the negative and basically lost part of the film, so they had to go back and reshoot it.
3: I didn't know that. I I I didn't realize they um they were part of the screenplay. Like they co-wrote the screenplay.
1: I've
2: yeah. never
3: read the. I've never read the novel.
2: A a lot of a lot of this film was it was filmed in uh, I don't know where specifically, but it was filmed in areas like maybe near Chernobyl, something like that. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the right a lot of the crew got very sick, and even uh, Tarkovsky himself died from from filming Stalker. So.
3: He did. I didn't re- really. He did. That.
2: Yeah. What, was it like a radiation-related
1: poison kind of? Uh, yes. That's crazy. There's two. This is the second movie. I never actually knew this, but the other movie I think about that ended up having most of the cast and crew died because of radiation because of its locale was John Wayne movie, The Conqueror, where he plays Genghis Khan. Because they shot it near where they were doing all the nuclear testing, and like everyone involved with that movie like died of some kind of weird like radiation-related cancer or poisoning type stuff.
3: Shit, I didn't know that. That's crazy.
1: Or the or just someone wanted John Wayne to die for playing a Mongolian badly.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> totally. Well, so yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that was um that he got that Trokowski got sick there. Like, you know, I didn't I didn't make that connection. Yeah. But, like it's like it's meta man.
1: The movie's bleak enough that it could have killed a person anyway, but <laughs>
3: I love that green like whenever it's funny because like I when I whenever I want to describe like my favorite green I'm like stalker green <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean it has you know it has those two color palettes which is like you know the color footage which is the zone and then I think it's sepia for everything that's like outside the zone
3: yeah it's super sepia yeah
1: what else about this movie is kind of like drawing to you obviously we're talking about it environmentally but you said this is like one of your all-time favorite films not to put you on the spot but I'm going to
3: Well, it's partly that what, I mean, what we were saying, the visual aspect and the fact that it's, every shot is like a painting. Um, But also this, um, I'm always like into the unknown, like going into the unknown. And that's, that's definitely a movie about that. Like, they don't know where they're going, but they really want to go and they don't know, you know, there's always like, what's, what's, you know, above the the horizon, kind of. Like the hidden, the unknown is, is something that is very attractive to me, so.
1: The also, the other thing I think about when I think of Tarkovsky is his way he handles, like, science fiction. Because the even... I'm Only because it's just stuck in my head. is like, Solaris, because that was the first one I saw. It's like, the way he handles sci-fi is, like, it almost feels like it's real in a way that, like, a lot of science fiction isn't. And this even feels real. Mostly because it's not, like, you know, it's not... It's not Star Wars, if... What I'm getting at. But it... it it feels grounded. It feels, it feels like the future. It feels like a very real future that it could be. It's also very dystopian, which is another theme we'll be covering
2: a lot in these movies.
3: <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a, it's, it's like future realistic for sure.
2: I'm going to, I'm going to spoil something here, you know, about the ending or whatever, which, which we tend to do. Um, so listeners, if you haven't seen stalker, just pause this. Go, go spend three hours. Go watch this. But so for, for those who have seen it, or just don't mind the spoiler, um, uh, he keeps mentioning that his daughter's been affected by the zone, you know, and, uh, and so then they reveal that kind of at the end. It's like a, I mean, I don't know what else to call it, but kind of like an X-Men sort of thing. Like, I didn't even see that. Like, I didn't see that coming. Like fuck! I lost my mind. <laughs> so, I love
3: yeah. the dog too. Like, there's a you know, there's like a black German Shepherd, or like I don't know which kind of dog it is, but he's he's like a main like ghost kind of presence yeah. in the movie. It's very really, uh, very unsettling.
2: You just re- watched this recently, haven't you, Nick? Uh, at least three times since December. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I I am infatuated with this. I have. Like I say, I have the book. I have the book about it.
3: Look, it made a huge impression on me the first time I saw it. And it, I, every once in a while, I'm like, I've got to watch soccer again.
2: <laughs> so, cool.
3: you know, it's one of those things. So th-
2: thanks for bringing this one to the table because because uh, Jim is kind of adverse to, to sci-fi, it seems. So, oh.
3: <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that.
1: I like sci-fi, but like, I'm very picky when I talk about it. I.
3: I, I think this is like kind of what they they call elevated sci-fi. <laughs> that,
2: yeah. That's fair. I don't mean to say that Jim doesn't like sci-fi. I'll say that he's selective. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I look at Tarkovsky.
1: yes, science fiction, but it's definitely more modern art in a way because it is like it's painting in real time. It's like, and I don't mean that as a negative. Like, you know, people, I'm not saying like it's watching paint dry on a wall. I mean, it's like watching a master painter paint in real time. And by the time you're done, it's like, holy shit, that's a, one of the best fucking things I've ever seen. And, you know, I remember when I first saw Stalker, I got it when I think Kino put it out and it was on DVD and it was like two discs, which is, you know, back in the day you had to like, one disc ended, had to take it out, put it in the next one. I, I mean, those early DVDs, like I think uh, Lawrence Arabia was like that. I think Seven Samurai was like that, like two discers. Because of just how long they were,
3: I mean, it's sci-fi, but it's yeah, it's 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 just art, basically. It's not because these days when you say sci-fi, like you picture, you know, Marvel movies or something, and I, I hate Marvel movies. So, <laughs> another
2: uh, another interesting thing about it is that, and again, spoilers. But when they when they got to the room, when they got to the place, they didn't go in.
3: They stay at the border. Yeah, they never cross the border, basically.
1: It, it, it's like finding the fountain of youth and be like, eh, I'm good. don't need either.
3: I don't know if I want to go in. Mm, maybe not. Yeah.
1: The fact is, it's like, it's, you know, wish fulfillment. And I feel like Tarkovsky, like as much as his movies or works are and beautiful, I don't want to say cynicism because I think that might be a little
4: too, well,
1: they are pretty like, they're pretty bleak. So if people had actually gone into those rooms and gotten what they wanted, that would be like, A happy ending, and I don't think Tarkovsky had that in him in any of his films, any (laughs) any way possible.
3: I think that I think the point is they don't know what they want, you know, because like we think we know what we want, but we really don't most of the time. So like Mm -hmm. when you're like, oh, if you if you walk through that door, you're gonna actually get what you want. It's like "Ah, I don't know what I want, Ah," you know. Mm -hmm. So
1: I mean, it beyond sci-fi it's just like a breakdown of human nature, just flat out because it's you know you're right it's just no one really knows what they want they think they know what they want but then when they're offered the exact thing it's like here's all your answers it's like whoa don't don't need that yeah it's
3: too much totally
1: well this is how you sum up a 163 minute movie in 10 <laughs> minutes or less
3: you have to experience, it's like you can't it's not really like a plot based movie like you have to experience it's an experience yeah it, like you can't really like explain
1: it. I mean, I, I know you've been, wa- you watched it at home for the first time, Nick, but it, it's a mm-hmm. different, different ball game when you see it in a theater.
2: Oh, I, I do have what one, one last quick thing before we move on. So uh, right when, right when the Egyptian was playing stalker that last time, um, I had, uh, I had neighbors like right next door, um, that I was very friendly with that were from Russia. Like, they literally just got here from Russia. They they could speak a little English, but, like, we had a, a little bit of a hard time communicating. So, so Stalker came up, and I'm like, oh, shit, a Russian movie. That's cool. Like, I'll sh- you know, I'll tell these guys about it. So I showed them. I showed them the trailer, and, you know, it's in Russian with subtitles and whatever, and we're watching the trailer, and, and when it was over, they went, that looks boring. We like American movies. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs>
1: That you know, that actually came up before. My wife worked with a woman who was Russian and like for some reason she was asking about like Russian films I know and like Tarkovsky was the first one that came up and she's like, Oh, that shit's boring. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I it, it might just be like it's it's sort of like a lot of the Italian genre stuff which was not very beloved and still not very beloved in Italy, but worldwide wide it's you know they're considered like, you know, art or, you know, really good films. And I mean, I I don't know enough about Russia's relationship with Tarkovsky, but because, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Because Russia's, or Tarkovsky was kind of like anti-Russian in style, because, you know, if we go back in film history, like montage or Soviet montage, the Eisenstein stuff, like that was the big, you know, that was kind of the thing that Russia became known for, was like all these, you know, montage editing. And like Tarkovsky was like, nope don't like fast editing here's this nice four minute shot (laughs) oh yeah, totally but you it's undeniable and you know it's i might not be the biggest sci-fi guy but like this movie is a work art and if you haven't seen it yet and you're still listening to it and you haven't paused and took about a three-hour break and came back shame on you go watch stalker now totally (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're going to be talking about more old and new sci-fi with Lola G. from Death Hags on the Cinematic Void Podcast.
4: For what had happened when the uranium atom split was a kind of double miracle of science. Half of the miracle concerned that binding force we spoke of before, that kind of cosmic blue which holds the atom's nucleus together. We still don't know all about that binding force yet, but we do know it is equivalent to mass. Therefore, we may speak of it as having a kind of weight of its own. Now, the two atoms into which a uranium atom splits also have binding force. But for some reason, it takes less of that glue to hold them together, and in the process of fission, a tiny fraction is left over. What happens to it? It explodes as energy, proving Einstein's theory that mass and energy are really the same. Welcome back.
1: We are talking about new and old science fiction with Lology G of Death Hags on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up next is the second film she suggested that we talk about, which is actually a pretty damn good movie. It came out in 2018. struck directed by Alex Garland, and it's Annihilation. It stars Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Benedict Wong, Oscar Isaac, and Tisa Thompson. And it's also based on a novel by Jeff Van Meer. And before I throw it to Lola, Nick, have you read this
2: book? This is one of my favorite books of all time. Absolutely.
1: Okay, before we get to that, I'm gonna throw it to Lola. So, why Annihilation?
3: Well, I was actually I read the book after seeing the movie. Um, but when I when I did see the movie, it was one of my favorite movies that year it was again the unknown the reference to stalker obviously i mean it's like everywhere in the movie (laughs) so like you know um and the um i forget which character i think it's the tessa thompson character she she decides to merge with the plants and the like, like that that sort of like spoke to me in so many like metaphysical ways that i was like this is like my favorite thing ever and then i read the books and the book is better than the movie but the movie's great so
1: i was gonna ask nick since like you've actually i think you've read most of the
2: books involved with these movies right I, yeah i read the whole series did you read the whole series lola
3: no. i read the first and the second i haven't read the third one but i want to read it <laughs> the
2: uh the the second one's a little boring um in my opinion i and i think it's that's kind of a it's kind of a I think I think that's a kind of a common opinion that the second one's boring but then the third one kind of jumps back into it and and it'll suck you in a little more oh, okay so, so definitely definitely uh check that out um I didn't like this movie when I first saw it because I love the book so much and that's kind of insane and and there's a there's there's a lot of differences between the two I I went back and watched the movie a little bit later and and came to love it like I I really think it's great now um but there's there's a lot of Differences in the two, like, I guess the movie is a culmination of all three books, in a way. But at the same time, it felt like, did he read those books? So, like, I think, I think at one point, I'm like, this guy didn't read the book.
3: I think that, I mean, I haven't read any interviews, but I think that it's not really impossible to really adapt that book well. I mean, Indeed. like, I was like, and when I read the novel after seeing the movie, I was like, I felt like I had gotten ripped off because I was like, oh, man, that movie sucked. Like, the book is so much better. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Like, imagine the uh, the tower or the tunnel, you know, that, that is, this is the majority of the book. Like, had that been in the film? Like, fuck. Yeah. But, and uh, the,
3: the, the, the the organism, I mean, the way he describes the, or. I mean, it's just, like, it's, but, it's, but, um, but I, I think he did his best with, I mean, you can't, yeah. I
2: don't think you, yeah. you know. Like you say, it's an it's an unfilmable book there's a lot of people that have made
1: careers out of making movies out of in unfilmable books. David Cronenberg did two. One was naked lunch, which if you did a literal adaptation, you would never be, you would be, you'd be shot off into space. <laughs> <laughs> and then there, they also did crash, which was, he got the tone, right. But it's like, there's no way you could do a literal that adapt, adaptation of crash ever. What's interesting is Alex Garland started out as a novelist on his own I think cuz he wrote um The Beach which Danny Boyle ended up adapting.
2: I believe he wrote 28 Days Later as well.
1: Yeah, he actually um he wrote the screenplay he wrote the screenplay to 28 Days Later and Sunshine. So
2: was he tied in with Danny Boyle like did did they they just specifically work together?
1: Yeah, I, I think because Danny Boyle did the beach first and then I guess like him and um Alex had hit it off. So they just started working together on like original stuff because 28 Days Later is, you know, it's a fantastic contagion movie or zombie movie or whatever you want to call it. And Sunshine is another really great sci-fi movie. It's somewhere in between, I'd say, like Event, event Horizon and maybe like Solaris in 2001.
3: I don't remember if I've seen it. I'm trying to, I think I have, but... <clears throat>
1: I haven't seen it in a while, but like it, it was just kind of interesting. He started as a novelist and then picked another person's novel to adapt for this, which was kind of, I don't know. It was kind of an interesting thing. And that's why I kind of wanted like the opinion on the book. Cause I, I haven't read the book.
2: I've, I've even, I've given my copy of this book away to multiple people and then had to rebuy it. And then I give my copy away again after I read it. Really? I
1: <laughs>
3: no, I, I'm, I, a fan. I it. I'm a fan. <laughs> too. I wonder, um, I want to read some of his, some of his other books.
1: So I guess we should get into those comparisons to Stalker because they both, and you know, involve an environment that you can go to, and you know, obviously they bring a crew. I forget what everyone is. You know, it's like a doctor, or like a science biologist, and you know, it's un. But unlike Stalker, is like they start becoming part of the environment, which is um, I my memory's a little bad at this, but it's like the shimmer thing where they kind of like involve and become part of it because you were talking about the metaphysical aspect which is kind of a unique way to look at sci-fi because like not a lot of sci-fi taps into the metaphysical or occult aspects of things which i think kind of do go hand in hand with like you know sci-fi but it not a lot of people utilize and this movie actually did a good job of that
3: yeah totally i like what i also like like the idea that there are other worlds that are among us but we like a lot of people don't see them and if you're attuned I mean I I don't know if you've ever had that experience but you know like sometimes you have that and like there's a vacant lot and you feel like if you walk in if you get in like it's a different world you know you're going to like there's a portal like there's there are portals somewhere
1: It's kind of the Lynch idea of like you know you go like, I, I always think of Twin Peaks and, like, you know, entering a portal into a different world. Like, I, I know we're not talking about him, but I think David Lynch is one of the few filmmakers that gets metaphysical stuff really well that a lot of people don't realize because they're not in that world. Like, my wife's very deep in metaphysical stuff, and, like, she's probably the one person that understands David Lynch's films better than anyone I ever met. And she, like, because most of the time when you think of Lynch, everyone's like, I don't understand what the fuck is going on. This is just weird shit. And my wife's like, no, it's like this. It's like that. This is this. And it's just like, oh, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, but I, I think of this one because it's just, you know, it's, you know, there's there's grief involved. There's like, there's some doppelganger stuff in it too. And uh, I actually did write down the Expedi- expedition team part of it, which is a biologist, an anthropologist, a psychologist, a surveyor, and a linguist, which is who you would want to go to like a unknown land to kind of chart and document and kind of break it down. Yeah. And then this movie does have probably one of the cooler sci-fi monsters in recent years, which are mutant bears.
3: Oh, that's right. I forgot about the mutant bears. <laughs> <laughs> the-
4: there's,
3: a, there's a thing in the book that I don't think is in the movie um, where she sees a dolphin. Oh, right. Out of the ocean. Uh, yeah. of The whatever body of water and, and the the dolphin's eye is human. And
4: yeah.
3: that's when she realizes that every like cells, it's like a multi species, cells merging environment in area X. And it's like, I really wanted to see that in the movie after I read the book. But yeah, it's, I don't think it's in mm-hmm.
2: there. And there, there aren't many of the, the creatures, like the, the mutant bears, like they aren't in the book. Like, I think the dolphin thing is one of the very few examples of, of a, a mutated kind of creature.
1: that was the other thing I was curious about because again I haven't read the book but like I was just wondering I'll probably give it
2: to you at some point
1: (laughs) it's like it's your turn to read it It becomes like the ring where everyone has to read it and then have to pass it on to someone else or you get mauled by like a mutant bear totally
2: yeah totally I would I would just like to mention that they weren't in love in the book and and that that being a major plot point in the movie fucking pissed me off (laughs)
3: You know what? You're right. I totally forgot about that. Yes, I forgot about that part. I, I, I mean, it's been a while since I watched it. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. That ruins it. That was
1: that. that was definitely a studio note. Yeah. I know.
3: They're like, no, no, no. They have to be no.
1: <laughs> you, you can't have this in a movie. You gotta have a love interest. You gotta have like that angle.
3: They, oh, they just have to ruin everything. So yeah.
1: Despite that, I think Annihilation. If you haven't seen Annihilation, just please watch it. Watch it. Watch it after you watch Stalker. Actually, just just make a marathon of all four of these movies. This is the kind of stuff I want to see people doing, as you know, in the science fiction realm. Not necessarily what is now filling the science fiction realm. Do
3: you think that maybe that's why it didn't do well? Because it's not conventionally, uh, I guess, sci-fi, I, or, I don't know.
1: I also think they might have they might have botched the marketing on it. Because you would think a movie starring Natalie Portman, and I think Natalie Portman was still doing pretty. I'm not saying, I, I, I really don't know how like you know people judge actors and like hot projects or whatever. But like it's got a stacked cast, so there's there's re- there's really no reason. But like I, I should probably go back and watch the trailers and just see how they sold it because like I feel like marketing is what really probably killed it, and like it was probably just it was probably too unique of a film to figure out how to get it to it. Cause it's like, you can't really push it towards like the star Wars or the Marvel crowd because it's not it. I mean, you could, but they would all be really, really fucking mad about it. But it's, it's not quite that it's, it's not quite on the like weird end of like sci-fi or like, you know, the it's obviously it's got some Tarkovsky in it, but like they can't really market it to that crowd.
3: It's not like art house. But it's too artful to be mainstream, I guess.
1: Because it, it wasn't a big budget movie. And when I say wasn't big budget, it was like I think its budget was like 50 million, which seems like a lot. But for a sci-fi like movie in 2018, 50 is kind of like a that's considered a middle road budget. That's usually for like kind of high end independent films or like, you know, the dramas and stuff like that. So there was a lot of money on it. But like, you know, it it looks good. I think the movie's really, you know, well done. It's I just think it it couldn't find an audience, but like I know when it came out of theaters and basically died. I know a lot of people went and saw it and were champing at it, and then when it hit Netflix, I know a lot of people went and like watched it that way. So I have a feeling maybe in like maybe next five to ten years, it's gonna be a movie that like is gonna reemerge, kind of thing. Because it I I think it might have been a little ahead of the scale, because like. At at some point, and I know people aren't agree with me, the Marvel's Star Wars, Disney Monopoly on like franchise is gonna burn out. That that it, it always happens. It's a film cycle. It's like you gotta think of all the years there have been musicals. Not knocking musicals, but like for a good twenty years there was nothing but fucking musicals that Hollywood was making. And they just got worse and worse and worse. And then what came out of it was the American New Wave or the Hollywood New Wave where you got people like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and, like, you know, Billy Freakin and, like, all those, like, kind of people that are doing more art-driven movies that were not costing a lot of money. But, you know, it's – I think people are going to get burned out of, like, comic books.
3: I I mean, I kind of hope so because it's – I don't like them, but, you know, I mean, what do I know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the, the, only, the last Marvel movie I saw was Iron Man, the first one. That That is the only one I've seen. That's going to be the only one I'm probably going to see. It's just, I, I don't have the investment. It's like, I don't want to watch movies like a TV show that you wait three months to see the next chapter and it's all connected. It's just like, you know, I, I know people like that and it's a good business model because it just makes people go back. But it's just like, it's not, I want to see individual movies. You know, it. I want to see someone give it their all, tell a full, complete story in, like, 90 minutes to, like, you know, some people need three hours. The, you know, three hours. Whatever it takes to make the, to tell your story. I don't need a never-ending, continuous loop. Because those Marvel and Star Wars movies, like, where does it fucking end? Yeah, Darth Vader's dead, but then a new bad guy's going to show up, and it just... It, it, it's just basically grand-scale episodic TV. But we're going to take another quick commercial break, but we're, we're going to be talking about more old and new sci-fi with Lola G of Death Hags on the Cinematic Void podcast. <laughs> Unbearable suspense yeah. that keeps you
0: on yeah. the edge of an abyss of terror.
1: Take a cult film odyssey into cinema madness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at CinematicVoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking about old and new science fiction with Lola G of Death Hags on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Up next, we're actually going to revisit a title that Nick and I talked about, I guess, some point last year. I don't know what the years are during this pandemic. They all kind of blur together. But we talked about this movie on our drugs episode and more in the reference to the psychedelic images and things you could watch while being high and having an experience. This time, though, we're going to be looking at it at a different angle. Or maybe the same angle. I don't know. It, it depends. So, this movie is from 1974. It's directed by the great Saul Bass, who did title sequences for a lot of Hitchcock stuff and Kubrick stuff. And one of the great, like, designer eyes that ever graced any medium, really. And the movie we're talking about is Phase 4. Stars Nigel Davenport, Michael Murphy, and Lynn Frederick. And... If you haven't seen the movie, it involves these desert ants that suddenly form a collective intelligence and begin to wage war on its inhabitants. You know, it's it's a killer ant movie, but not in the Irwin Allen sense of, like, disaster movie or giant animal attack, or I should say Irwin Allen or, um, Bird Eye Gordon who loved, like, animals and giant stuff, but... This is a very unique film, probably a little too unique because poor Saul Bass didn't get to make another feature-length movie after this. This was his one-and-done, so he joins the ranks of um, Charles Lawton, who did Night of the Hunter, another masterpiece that was misunderstood at the time, so it's he's in good company there. He's in one of the upper echelon of one and duns, but so Lola, why Phase 4?
3: You know, um, it was on my list of things to watch for a long time. And I finally watched it last year. And I was just like, this is my new favorite insect movie. I love this. I mean, it's again, it's like every, you know, the visuals are amazing. And the ants, if the macro, um, you know, they film like those are real ants. The macro
1: photography. Yeah.
3: Yeah. The macro photography of the ants was just the ages blew me away. Like, the, I was I was entranced by the ants. And there's, like, an alternate ending. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the alternate, the, the Kubrick ending?
1: Uh, the, the ending where the ants win, and phase four literally happens, and they take over. It's all a montage, and it's just, like, one of, like, it's insane. And I can see why, not that I agree with the studio cutting it, but I can see why they're like, nope. It would have been so much better with that ending, but... Yeah, it's oh, still great.
3: It's still a great movie. And and it's the same idea of, like, the environment takes over.
1: The environment changes because the ants become, you know, they get into their own group thing. And they're like, eh, fuck the humans. Which is a fair assessment, I would say, even in the bleak, like, dystopian landscape. Now, I know Nick didn't read the book of this one because this one's a little different. The, there is a novelization based on the film script that actually came out before the movie did. It was adapted by Barry Ann who did a bunch of other sci-fi stuff that I can't think of off the top of my head, but like the book came out in 73, the movie came out in 74 and the book actually has the original ending in it.
3: Oh, with the Kubrick type. Yeah. Okay. I
1: I don't know how it's presented in the novel, but it does. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the last page is it. And Kubrick style montage, the, (laughs) the close things out as the ants take over. I mean, Uh, that's a pretty good sentence, I guess. Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's interesting you brought up because I do love this movie because it's just, it's weird, but in a really, really great way because, like, there's a lot of sci-fi movies, obviously, but, like, it's very unique in what it does. And it's like, yeah, it's also a killer bug movie, but it's presented in a way where normally the killer bugs are giant or, like, you know, radiation, but this is, this is animals... Or insects working together in intelligence, which is, I think, pretty unique because, like, most of the time when you get into, like, killer bugs and killer animals, it's just, they're tr- the animals are treated as, like, just dumb or crazed or something happened in the sun or any any multitude of excuses of why the animals are doing what they're doing. This is just animal evolution, which I think is really interesting because I always kind of wonder what what's going to evolve that's going to take out the humans. And honestly, ants could probably do it.
3: Could be ants are very smart. But I like I like that. I like how the guy's trying to communicate with the. He's like, this is an intelligence form, a form of intelligence I want to communicate with, and he's trying to do like, sign like you know like radio waves or whatever with his signals. I like that.
1: It's like they're trying to like communicate with like alien life, except it's life that's on this planet. It's you know it's a very it's much deeper than just like, a you know, ants on the rampage movie because it's it deals with like primordial things of like evolution and like, you know, language, language and like, you know, just communicating because like I I think in everyday life and as I get very philosophical here is like people don't really think of like communicating with like anything outside of like other humans. But like, you know, people have pets. You communicate with your pets you commu- you you see a bird that's, like, singing, and, like, I at least have, like, notions, like, what's why is it singing? Like, is it singing to me? Is it singing to something else? Like, you know, or when a squirrel runs up to you, or any multitude of things. It's just, I feel like I'm on drugs, and I'm going down this deep rabbit hole of, like, the deeper...
3: <laughs> you sound very normal to me, because I talk to trees, so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs>
1: The biggest thing is communication just on any level, which, you know, a lot of sci-fi, like, if you could communicate it with the alien or the xenomorph from Alien, would it really been mad? Would it really killed everyone?
3: Yeah, that's a good question.
1: It's like, you know, because, like, I feel like human nature is to destroy. And in this movie, it's like, no, we need to understand because we need to have a greater. It's like it's really doing the scientific, you know, duty which is like trying to learn and understand whereas i think a lot of sci-fi movies just like blow them the fuck up kind of mentality
3: it's like there's a good guy a bad guy like one guy wants to destroy them the other guy wants to understand them so yeah. it's good cop bad cop i guess it's like that movie with um amy adam you know what was it called arrival
1: oh yeah with and the where,
3: where like she's trying to talk to them and there's like this annoying dude who wants to kill them instead and the same
1: dynamic. The biggest thing of this movie is just consciousness and just it's it's very deep and like obviously this is environmental too but like I think well I'd say stalker is very very heady and cerebral and this is this is in the same I don't want to say it's like the same thing because like you know stalker is a dystopian future where you're trying to find like your happiness or like the thing you always long for and then deciding like oh I don't want it. And phase 4 is like trying to understand things you don't understand just so you can understand life. So it's it's quite deep. I feel like I'm getting really deep in a movie about ants.
3: It's worth watching just for those that footage of the ants. I mean, like
2: seriously. I didn't realize that was actual footage of ants. Um it's it's insane. It's insane.
3: I mean, yeah. <laughs>
2: But then, when I, when I was thinking about it and looking at it, I'm like, if that's not actually ants, I also don't know how the fuck they did that. Yeah. Whatever it, it is, like if that's puppets or something, it's insane. <laughs> but
1: I mean, that ant footage is like, it's it's crazy because like, I they mean, didn't I have know
3: the effects at the time. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm kind of glad they didn't have the effects. Could Could you imagine watching Phase Four with a bunch of CGI ants? Oh uh, no. What was Jerry Seinfeld in a movie about ants? Like an animated movie? Was it called Ants with a Z or something like that?
2: I think he's the B guy.
1: Oh, it's the B. But there was <laughs> there was a movie called Ants, right? Yes, but it wasn't Jerry Seinfeld. So
3: no, no, no. I I don't remember who that was though.
1: I I was just thinking because like if you animated the ants, it would just it it wouldn't feel the same. And which I think that which also gives Phase Four like realism because like it's you know. Obviously, you're manip- manipulating footage, and the way it's edited, and the way it's presented is what makes it how it work. But, like, if you put in a CGI or, like, an ant puppet, I think it would take you out of it. it. I think it's, like, those little details. And, like, Saul Bass, like, was always, always detail-heavy. Everything from, like, the trailers, his title sequences, his poster art. Like, it's just... It's a shame that he didn't get more opportunities to make films because like he definitely had an eye that you know a lot of filmmakers or artists don't have,
3: yeah, I wonder why he didn't make another film after this, I mean, other than the fact that he wasn't commercially successful but
1: it it it's weird because like. 'Cause you look at the people that've had box office failures in recent years who get to come back and make movie after movie. And then you think of like Elaine May who like made essentially two movies and then like got punished for Ishtar, which was not even like really her fault.
3: Oh my god, I just saw that recently. It's actually good
1: <laughs> No, I Ishtar really liked it. Ishtar Ishtar isn't bad, but I think it just it was one of those things that kind of got a bad rap at the time because, like Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman were just being assholes on the movie, and she paid the price, which sucks. And I feel like because this was a weird sci-fi movie, and everyone's like, you know, it's all just just stick to doing titles and posters and stuff like that. And I I feel like this is just, and this is going back to Alex Garland, what we were talking about in the previous segment. It's just when it comes to art, if you don't, if you if you make pure art or you try to do something different, you get punished more than like, if you make a flop that was like what the studio wanted.
3: Yeah, that's true actually. And I guess it's the same in music a little bit. <laughs> it's like...
1: I mean, it's just like, there's bands that put out shit album after shit album, after shit album. And the studios like, or the record labels like, yeah, here's some more money. I guess someone's listening to that stuff. I, I don't know, but it, I feel like it's a bad mentality. if It's like, you know, I don't think Phase 4 was, like, a big box office, like... I don't think they lost a lot of money on it, but I feel like because of what it was and just how weird... Because, like, it, it definitely came out in that phase in the 70s where it was, like, the weird, like... I mean, Stalker kind of falls into this, too, even though it's a little later. But, like, there's stuff like Silent Running and things like that. Very existential, like, deep and ponderous sci-fi, which... I do like quite a bit, and like this is part of it. It's just like I think combination of like I, I wouldn't say this movie's bleak, but it's definitely like it's not a happy film. Well,
2: yeah,
3: I guess it's not a happy film. I guess, I guess not.
4: <laughs> it's like, uh,
3: I mean, I don't know if it's bleak, but yeah, it's not happy. It's not. There's no happy ending. Well, actually, there is kind of a happy ending.
1: There's a happy, end, but the original yeah. ending. The original ending's happy for ants, which, good for ants. <laughs> and I will say this now to our future ant overlords. Hey, phase four is a masterpiece. Don't eat me. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of other humans you can eat first, but I don't know. But um, any closing thoughts on phase four before we move on?
3: Watch it. Just for the ants.
1: I feel like the Ants should have won Best Actor. They should have won both categories because, like, those Ant performances, like, I'm trying to think what won, who won for 1974. I can't think of it. I, You're not better than the Ants in Phase 4, I'm sorry. What? W- watch, it was like, I should probably look this up.
3: Probably, like, Robert Redford or something.
1: Best Actor, Art Carney for Harry and Tonto.
2: I'll take the Ants.
1: I'll take the. I like Art Carney.
3: <laughs> I don't. I have like, no idea who that is.
1: <laughs> Art, Art Carney was a comedian. He's there's a movie he did with Lily Tomlin. I'm forgetting the title of. That's really really good. But he was also in that abomination of the Star Wars Christmas special. So,
4: yeah.
1: oh, I'm I'm gonna take Art Carney's Oscar away from and give it to the ants from Phase Four. Um, Robert De Niro won Best Supporting Actor for The Godfather Part Two. Oh,
3: no, I mean not a good year. Not a good year.
1: It's like De Niro's fine, but you know you grew a mustache. Those ants had to work their ass off, so your Academy Awards going to the ants. Ingrid Bergman won Best Supporting Actress in Murder on the Orient Express. I mean, I love Sidney Lumet, but like it's not a great Agatha Christie adaptation. It's she, it,
3: she's good though, so she deserved it.
1: Yeah, I think this might have been this might have been. I don't know if she won another Oscar outside of this, because I almost feel like this might have been pity Oscar, which sucks even more because she was in so many great movies. I'm not; She's actually really good in the movie, but it's not a great Cindy Lamette movie, but I'm going to let her keep her Oscar because it's Ingrid Berkman. And uh, yeah, and the other one, like, I can't give to the answer because it is Ellen Burstyn and Alice Doesn't Live For Her Anymore, which is a phenomenal performance. It's, it's one of my favorite Scorsese films. Yeah, I, I can't take away Ellen Burstyn's Oscar because I love Alice. So they can have Art Carney's and Robert De Niro's, but the other two they can't have. But yeah, so we are rectifying history. Academy, do your diligence, give a post. I guess those ants probably did. I don't actually what's the life expectancy of an ant?
3: Definitely not lot uh however many years that is <laughs> like <laughs>
1: Uh, whatever. Just, just collectively give it to the ants because when they take over, they're gonna take those Oscars anyway. <laughs> I-, I, I'm sorry that I derailed this just to give the ants Oscars, but you know it's important. Damn it! I like,
3: think it is. I think they will appreciate it.
1: That's the other thing. It's like, why don't they give Academy Awards for Best Animal Actors?
3: You know, I think that's a valid category that should definitely be considered.
1: I think the, the two that you need to add is stunt, stunt people and animals.
3: Yeah, stunt people don't have their award.
1: No. no, and stunt people do, like, a lot of the heavy lifting. It's, like, outside of Tom Cruise, who has to do all of his own running and jumping and all that stuff, like, <laughs> I, I don't think Brad Pitt's, like, doing his own stunts at this point. God, no. So, yeah, it's rectify it. Give Academy Award to the ants. Give Have a category for animals category for stump people there you go and in 2021 the oscars will be better all right we're going to take another quick commercial break but when we return we're going to talk about some wild card picks that lola sent
0: us on the cinematic boy podcast in the next few moments we will try to give you an impression of a new kind of film experience if your curiosity is aroused you are ready for phase four <laughs>
4: sending back my message. What does it mean? This is no message. If there's an intelligence there, I want it to know there's an intelligence here. I believe that they will move rather quickly into desert areas, taking over the countryside first, then laying siege to towns and cities. We chance please go away i can't believe it you know our plans strengths our weaknesses why don't they kill us what do they want how do you fight a
0: force that knows what your next move will be before you think of it Ah!
1: Welcome back. We've been talking about old and new science fiction here on the Cinemac Void Podcast. with our friend Lola G. from Death Hags. And these next two films that, honestly, neither Nick and I have seen, but after reading about them, I kind of want to see both of them. So, Lola, why don't you talk about these two wildcard picks you suggested?
3: Um, well, the first one is Kuzo. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if it's written by him, but it's definitely directed by Flying Lotus. And I think he co-wrote it with someone. I don't remember who, but um, it's sort of like, well, first of all, I love Flying Lotus. And I I read that he did a movie and that um, it created like a mass walkout somewhere. I think it was Sundance. So just for that, I had to see it. Um, cause you know, it was like, people said it was unwatchable and really offensive and this and that. And it's really basically like Jorodowski level of, you know, gr- I guess it's a grotesque surrealist movie, but it, I don't understand why they walked out. Like, I, I'm not really sure.
1: I think it might have to do with the Sundance crowd. If they, I've never been the Sundance. I've no critics of have- like people I know who like review films have gone but like I I feel like a lot of people go to Sundance and don't really care about the movies they just want to say they saw something so when something is a little bit subversive I think it fucks with them in a way they're not prepared for it takes a lot like it's not like con where like if you show a movie that people hate they fucking boo and like hiss and all that stuff yeah yeah, yeah. like that it doesn't really happen at Sundance usually if a movie like comes out that no one cares about it just dies and disappears but like this like apparently made enough noise and just looking at the cast it's like this weirdest collection it's like dare i say like taking like the adult swim approach to like bringing people because it's hannibal burris it's george clinton from parliament funkadelic tim heidecker from tim and eric obviously and the person who wrote one of the greatest songs ever that nick and i can attest to zach fox
2: i got depression (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's basically like Buñuel but like through like you said through the adult swim filter but it's visually it's it's like a smorgasbord of just like creativity like it makes no sense whatsoever
1: I looked at the poster and it just looks insane
3: yeah it's basically insane but it's just it, I don't know I I liked it <laughs>
1: so. now you said Jodorowsky is it closer to like maybe the holy mountain in a way
3: yeah in the sense that he does you can tell that he he does try to like shock people a little bit like juice you know i mean whatever i mean nothing shocks me but i could see i guess why people would be shocked but yeah it's it definitely has a jordovsky holy mountain
1: i think it was playing on shutter for a little bit i don't know if it's still on there but like it, i remember when it came out i was like i definitely need to check it out and then i didn't so when i saw this pop up on your list i was like shit i need to rewatch it and then i ran out of time to rewatch it before this podcast but now it's like now it's all on my list of things i need to watch before the next time i do a podcast so i can talk about and rewatch and listen because like i'm i'm kind of excited to see it like the fact that someone wrote it was the grossest movie ever made which i don't really believe because
3: well the premise is there's an earthquake in la and everybody comes down with like a really disgusting skin disease and so like it's People have um, just weird things on their face, and their skin is sort of peeling off. And I, I, I guess that's the disgusting part of it.
1: <laughs> it sounds like the person that said this had not really ever seen a horror movie,
4: or right,
3: or a Buñuel movie, or a Horodowski movie. I mean, clearly, but uh, but yeah, it's it's very interesting, and I I think that definitely. And the music is great. There's some Aphex Twin um, in there. There's some um, like, he did some of the music, but he also collaborated with people. I mean, it's just this big thing.
1: This is when you use your clout in the right way. Because, obviously, music is what opened the door for this to happen. And someone's like, I love what you do. Have you ever thought about making a film? And I feel like he said yes. And he just had this idea. And, like, basically, no one said no because he was Flying Lotus. So he just like, all right, if there's no boundaries, I'm just going to push this to the most insane thing I could possibly fucking do, which is what it sounds like. And I can't wait to actually watch this one.
3: I recommend it.
1: Now for your second kind of wild card pick is a movie. I think it's on Hulu now, if I'm not mistaken, it's, um, she dies tomorrow. And I'm just going to read the plot of this because it, it sounds like something I would love just, Based on what it is, so Amy is uh, ravaged by the notion that she's going to die tomorrow, which sends her down a dizzying emotional spiral. When her skeptical friend Jane discovers Amy's feelings of imminent death to be contagious, they both begin a bizarre journey through what might be the last day of their lives. I think the premise is great because, like, dealing with like someone is like I'm gonna die or like doom. You know, like, or just going on Twitter for like five minutes and doom scrolling. Like, I, I can, I can relate to this, especially after this pandemic. Or I guess it's still going. So this never-ending pandemic. So it seems like it's a very relatable topic, at least.
3: Yeah, um, it's it's a very strange, uh, suffocating kind of film, which I really like. And there's some really beautiful like not much dialogue (laughs) except that the idea that death is contagious so like she she thinks she's going to die tomorrow and whoever she meets is then going to think that they're going to die tomorrow and it creates this panic but there's there's a lot more to that and it's uh, there's also the the environment being a character because you can tell like through her house is kind of alive and there's strange things going on outside and you know colors and so it kind of fits with the other movies.
1: So it's kind of like the environment is kind of feeding into, like, the idea, like, death is eminent.
3: Yeah, which is where she didn't make it during the pandemic, but it it came out during the, at the beginning. And it was like, wow, this (laughs) like, kind of, yeah.
1: We're going to take one last commercial break, but we're in turn. It's going to be read, watch, and listen on the Cinematic Void podcast.
0: Concepts of the universe have changed, just as our knowledge of the Earth itself has changed compress the entire history of the earth into one year. On this time scale, eight months of the year would be devoid of life. During the succeeding two months, simple bacteria would come into existence. Mammals would not appear until the second week in December. Man would walk into the scene at 11.45 p.m. on December 31st. Recorded history would account for but the final ticks of the clock. Man's aerospace achievements, little more than the flicker of an eyelash. Welcome back.
1: It's now time for. On the cinematic void podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. And since Lola is the guest, you get to go first. So Lola, tell us, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to?
3: I've been reading, um, well, first of all, I would like to recommend uh, Jaron Lanier. Lanier? I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Ten um, Reasons to Quit Social Media. And uh, <laughs> it sounds simplistic, but, it, you know, I think it's a very, uh, very needed book. So I definitely want to recommend that. And I've also been reading a lot of futurist stuff, but nonfiction. So the big, um, what is it called? the big nine i think it's called uh by emmy webb it's about big tech and it's a very uh short and informative read so there's that that's for read um listen i haven't really listened to anything because i'm writing a lot of music <laughs> so i don't really i try not to listen to anything else otherwise it goes into my brain but uh but my friends from dead meadow did a levitation session that's really awesome so i highly recommend that and what was the other one? Watch. Oh, watch. Uh, what? Nomadland. Oh my God, my favorite movie of the last. Whatever. I know it just won some stuff, and it's well deserved. Um, I really love that movie.
1: Frances McDormand can really do no wrong.
3: She's amazing. Um, and also, I just watched that Zappa documentary that I highly recommend.
1: The one Alex Winter directed.
3: The very new one. I don't. I don't know who directed. Yeah. It.
1: Yeah, it was Alex Alex Winter of Bill and Ted fame directed it. It's on
3: like Amazon or something, um, and I I don't really know much about uh, Frank Zappa, and it, it was it was really uh, there was some some really deep moments. I thought.
1: I really don't know much about Zappa. I know that his hometown is my hometown. He grew up, he was born or grew up in Aberdeen, Maryland. So it's me, Frank Zappa, and Cal Ripken Jr. Very nice. That, that's the pedigree of Aberdeen, Maryland. <laughs> and Billy Ripken. We can't forget Billy Ripken.
2: Good old fuck face. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. We, we're going to have to explain this one. Unless sh- <laughs> yeah,
3: because I have no idea.
1: <laughs> okay. So th- this, is pro- this is very, very... You have to be into baseball cards or Baltimore Orioles. So there's a baseball card with Billy Ripken, who is the, I guess not his famous brother of Cal Ripken. He posed for a photo with his like practice bat on the butt of his practice bat. It said fuck face. And it ended up on the card. It was printed on the cards. No one called it. So all these baseball cards with Billy Ripken with his bat that said fuck face went out. It was a huge deal. And it's, it's only funny probably to just Nick and I and maybe anyone else that's from like Maryland that remembers it. But like it, like, there's versions of the card where they, like, they caught them and then they put, like, a black, like, piece of tape over or out or whatever. It's it's ridiculous. So someone was doing bootleg shirts of the card where you could see the fuckface clearly. And it's just like, man, I kind of want one. I'm just not a baseball person, but, like, I can get behind a Billy Ripken fuckface shirt.
3: I bet they go for a lot of money, though. They're like a collector, collectible.
1: No, I I think there's so many of them because it was a mass produced card for a while when you couldn't get them. But then like it's I don't even know if baseball cards are still worth money. I don't even think like things like that or comics are worth money. I think they're all devalued at this point. If you can't put them on your own iPhone digitally, what's the point?
3: Well, the new thing is crypto baseball cards.
1: Is that really a thing? Because you were telling me about
3: huge. Are you kidding? Enormous.
1: Cause you were telling me about like crypto stuff. Cause like, I guess this is a good time since we didn't actually do it at any point in the podcast. Talk about our collaborative project, which is li- <laughs> we save it. We save the best for last. Life of the Space Tree. So wh- when we when we started working on this project after we or I put together, you sent me the music and I did my edit, you started talking about these like crypto like art things. Do you want to talk about those a little bit?
3: Yeah, they're actually like just they just became mainstream this this week the whole the whole crypto world because suddenly everyone's doing them. But um but yeah, it's it's a it's a a new form because with blockchain you can actually prove ownership of a digital file. So you can sell it as a work of art that only exists online on on the blockchain basically.
2: That's I mean, that's, yeah, (laughs) it's it's bizarre. It's kind of bizarre,
1: (laughs) but it's kind of, it's kind of where like the world is headed anyway.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone's online, uh, all the time. And so that it's, it's become reversed. The physical is, is sort of the, I mean, it used to be the, the online was exceptional and the physical was the main thing and now it's reversed physical is the exceptional and the online is the main thing. Does that make sense?
1: You know what I mean? Oh, it definitely does. Because like, you know, how does most people watch movies now? Like, you know, I I, I mean, I know Nick just got into Blu-ray collecting, but like I still buy Blu-rays of things I like. But like I also watch a ton of shit on digital and streaming because that's just where a lot of it's available. And, you know, I couldn't tell you last time I bought an actual record. It's all digital.
3: Yeah. I mean, I do micro-releases because I, they feel more like art to me, so I, I like that. But I'm really into the crypto art
1: thing. Because so. cause when you pitched it to me, I'm like, what is this? And then you kind of explained it, and it's just like, I have no idea. It's like I felt like I was just so out of touch with the internet. But then I saw other things pop up, and then when you just said the baseball card thing, it's like, you're on the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's always good to be on the pulse and at the riding the wave as opposed to chasing the wave, so... Right, right, right. Now that we've derailed everything about... From Billy Ripken fuckface cards to crypto art, <laughs> we, we've run the gamut. But I guess we should also talk about, like, Life of Space Tree, so... Just a little bit. So, for your end... Because when we talked back, Because I'd, I'd done another similar thing with Wolfman of Mars, who, another great band, And we did a kind of horror in space. And then I think when I started talking to you about doing one, you're like, maybe we do a cult in space. And I was like, it's kind of interesting because like, and it's also when we talked about these films today, like all of them have a cult kind of background to them. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously for the mix, it wasn't like, you know, hard sci-fi. It was like, you know, I used a lot of, I guess, like, Hopefully NASA doesn't hear this. A lot of old NASA, like you know, you know, educational movies cut in with like you know trailers from like you know occult movies like The Wicker Man or uh, Blood on Satan's Claw and V and things like that. And it was kind of cutting them together. Like I never really thought of sci-fi and occultism together, but then it made sense. And again, you're riding the wave ahead of me on this. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, those are two of my favorite topics and to me, that makes perfect sense. It's always the unknown, you know, so.
1: I I mean, like I said, like all the movies we talked about, like share like a little bit, like, you know, even phase four, like, you know, the occultism, I don't, it's not as overt as maybe the other films, but like, you know, ants communicating, creating like their own civilization, like there's some occultism elements to it. It might not be as like, a witch doing like a seance or like a cauldron bubbling or anything like that, but it's in the same vein. So, but, and I'm going to say this as we plug things at the end here, if you haven't checked out the mix, it's available on YouTube. We also both are selling limited edition VHS of it. So I think I still have a few copies left to sell and I think we're getting to those in soon. Probably by the time this podcast comes out, we'll actually have them in hand.
3: I think so, yeah. We should we should get them any day now.
1: <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm excited because that, that was... I've been talking about wanting to do VHS and I think you pitched that too, again, riding that wave ahead. and I'm just chasing behind.
3: Um, and also, with the VHS, if anyone's into crypto media, um, there's a little crypto... There's NFTs that there are linked to that also that they can find on the internet.
1: That, that's actually actually really cool about it because it's like we're taking what is considered probably a dead media format, which is VHS, and infusing it with the latest media format. Exactly. Innov- innovation. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it and I if anything, it's just like I I want people to check out the mix because the the soundtrack you put together, like the I would say like the sci fi like It meets dystopian, like kind of soundscape, and then it becomes a dystopian dance party. I think that's kind of an accurate way to look at it.
3: I think people call that dark ambient these days. I've seen that term a lot, dark ambient. Does that sound familiar?
1: When I think dark ambient, I always think about like all the black metal bands when they got tired of playing guitars and like kind of like decided to use that stuff. But I I think that, I mean, honestly, it's kind of in the same vein of a lot of this stuff. Maybe not Burzum, because there's no Lord of the Rings or sketchiness with <laughs> what you're doing. But, but you know, I, I think dark ambience, uh, it's
2: a good term. What do you think, Nick? It's what we called it in the record store when it was like electronic music that was dark, but not techno. It's dark ambient.
3: I can get behind
2: that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right. Uh, for reading, um, last week I went to go get my real ID at the DMV, and that was awful. I don't, I don't, I don't recommend it. But I stood in line and read about half of uh, Jeff Dyer's Zona, a book about the film about a journey to a room, which is about stalker. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's what I've been reading. Didn't finish it, but worth worth mentioning because I I don't think I've mentioned a book in the past past few read watch listens so
1: i like i like that you were at a place of existential dread reading a book about a movie dealing with existential dread that is the most meta fucking thing i've ever
2: heard <laughs> just just miserable but you know <laughs> did you get your id though But I, I got my id i bought i actually bought a car yesterday i'm i'm yeah wow. it's I'm, wow. I'm, I leveled up. It's, it's sick. So congratulations. <laughs> my first time driving in LA like with my own car. So I, I've been here for a decade as of this year and I finally now I'm driving here, so very cool. L- l- little boys all grown up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I've been reading. Uh, as far as what I've been watching, I'm gonna start out with the uh, the atom bomb here. I just got myself a copy uh, from Unearthed Films, a Serbian film. Yeah, so I just watched a Serbian film and the feel-good movie of the year. I, I liked it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's a fucking disaster. But it was, uh, it was much more of a, I don't know. It was much more of a, a film than I thought it was going to be. Is a little, is much. It was less edge lord and artsier than i thought it was going to be i guess um although it obviously exists in both realms very much so no reason it's notorious no reason to go into details here a serbian film
1: (laughs) it's a movie i've had a lot of people request that i show really that there are 35 millimeter prints of it too
2: you have a wild crowd that's that's cool to hear (laughs) i mean that's insane I, (laughs) i
1: i can't even think of the context that i could get away with it
2: yeah what do you pair that with
1: you almost you almost have to go palate cleanser. You need to go exact opposite. You need to show Babe Pig in the City two after a Serbian <laughs> film or something like that. It's like as someone who's intentionally done really nihilistic, like double and triple features, where just like it just gets worse as you're going. Like I I don't think there's a way to like
2: there's no coming back from that. That's the I mean it, it's either
1: <laughs> it's either you start with Salo and then show that movie or <laughs> Babe. Babe, too. Pig in the city.
2: Next up, I watched uh, Clean Shaven. You know, I've been on my my Criterion kick lately. So Clean Shaven, American film by Lodge Kerrigan, starring Peter Green, about a schizophrenic uh, that's trying to get his daughter back and uh, scrubbing his skin with Brillo pads.
1: I've I've seen that. I haven't watched that. Did you get? Is it on Blu-ray now?
2: It's uh, it's just on the Criterion Channel. Okay. Because I, um, I have
1: the I have the DVD when it came out, and that's probably last time I watched it. But I remember really liking it.
2: Yeah, it's a cool one. I haven't seen it. Uh, just watched Europa Europa by Agnieszka Holland, a Polish Polish director. Um, she actually wrote or, or was at least one of the writers for uh, Kieslowski's Blue.
4: Hmm. Yes. Um,
2: which is very cool. But Europa Europa is about, uh, you know, this, this, uh, Jewish kid that's fleeing the Nazis and end up, ends up, um, I guess he's kind of like, he kind of weasels his way in where he's like adopted by some, some Germans or something and kind of passes himself off as one of them as like an Aryan. Yeah. He passes
3: for Aryan. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, pretty interesting film. Um, and then I just watched the, uh, Speedcubers doc on Netflix which is uh, which is great, which is a bunch of kids like solving a Rubik's cube in like three seconds and uh, and I bought one and I figured out how to solve it and I can solve it in nine fucking minutes. So I'm gonna get my time down to I'm gonna I'm gonna work on my time. I'm no, I'll never get it down to three seconds, but I can do it, man. I'm stoked.
3: Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. yeah. Uh,
2: and then for listening, I've been listening over and over to the Rome streets DJ Muggs uh, record that just came out. It's it's, it's super sick. Uh, just, you know, hip hop DJ mugs is a legend. Um, yeah, it's great. I don't know if you've heard that one yet, Jim, but it's, you know, I have not. It's, it'll, it'll be your shit. It's sick. It's called uh, death and the magician. It's great. Also been listening to that Conway big ghost. They finally put that on all the streaming platforms. It's called, if it bleeds, it can be killed. And I think that's really good as well. Um, maybe even better than some of the other Conway stuff he did last year. Uh, and then I've just been listening to a bunch of like old soul stuff. Delphonics, Marie Queenie Lyons, Lee Moses, Gloria Barnes. Um, so yeah, that's about it for me. How about you, man?
1: I'm just blown away. One, you bought a car. <laughs> and two, you bought a fucking Rubik's Cube.
2: And, and you solved it.
3: And I fucking solved it. In like nine minutes?
2: Nine minutes. Nine minutes. It took me a week. And then the day that I solved it, well, I solved it once and then I was like, fuck yeah, scrambled it up. And then I timed myself. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I, I
1: don't even know if I should even do my list because I, I'm, this is a hard act to follow.
2: I've had a sick week. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You're on a roll. (laughs) All
1: right. I'll just try. So for read, I, I'm still reading focus on murder by George Harmon Cox, uh, kind of a pulp novel. I've only reading like a couple pages a day because I still have a hard time reading. I, I blame I need to read that get off social media book because I think that will help me get back to actually being able to read literature or You
3: should. No, it's it's good. It's a short book and it's very convincing.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree with it without even reading it. I but I should read it. So that's been the only thing I've been reading. Um watch because it was Valentine's Day, um, Cinematic Void did her five-year anniversary Cinematist movie where I showed X-Ray, which was the first movie I showed at Cinematic Void, which is the other 80s Valentine's Day slasher. This one produced by Canon Films, directed by Boaz Davison, who obviously did Last American Version, Lemon Popsicle. And although it's supposed to be a slasher movie, it plays like a comedy. I also watched the other, the quintessential 80s Valentine's Day slasher, My Bloody Valentine, which I think is one of the best slasher movies ever made. And shout-out to Canada, because it's one of the probably the best Canadian films made that wasn't directed by a Cronenberg. I also watched, I guess, late 2000s, uh, another the- holiday-themed slasher, Valentine, which I hadn't seen. I had a copy of it on Blu-ray that I got for, I think it was a like Beyond Fest giveaway. And it's been sitting on my shelf, and it's like, oh, fucking, might as well watch it. And surprisingly, not bad, especially for, like, a later 2000s slasher. I also did a rewatch of uh, Perfume of the Lady in Black starring Mimsy Farmer, one of the great 70s Giallos. Has a little cannibalism a- angle, has a really great soundtrack. Um, I watched the AGFA horror trailer show, which is just AGFA, which is American Genre Film Archive, put together like a compilation of some trailers that they had in their archive. Did a scan, put together a show. It's kind of cool. It, it, it's a decent trailer comp. I do like trailer comps as things to put on the background. I also watched from Fun City Editions, I Start Counting, starring Jenny Aguder, who was in Walkabout and American Werewolf in London. I I wrote down the plot of this one because, like, I wasn't going to get this one that I read, and it's like, this sounds really creepy and interesting. Basically, it's a coming-age story of a 14-year-old girl who then discovers that her older foster brother may be uh, basically a sex crime killer. And it's uh, made in, like, I think it was a 1969 British movie, and it's, like, really, really fucking good. Um, I also watched Panic Beats, which is uh, starring and I think directed by Paul Naschy, the great Spanish wolf man. This movie is not a werewolf. He wears a uh, knight armor and kills people. And for listen, I've been listening to a few of the singles that have been coming out from Denzel Curry and Kenny Beats. There's a I guess there's some remixes from Unlocked. Um, there's two of the songs so far. One of them, I think, was remixed by Alchemist. And I think that was cosmic, so it's got guests and different people interpretation. I think there's a unlock two coming out soon. I also listened to um Freddie Gibbs doing a cover of Gil Scott Heroin's um Winter in America where it doesn't rap, just sings. It's really good. Kinda reminds me of some of the R and B stuff he did with Mad Lib on Pinata and Bandana. It's it's really interesting, especially coming from him. It's really good. And I've I saw also been-
2: I saw that he did that on uh, on ESPN. Is that the only uh, available version, or was there an actual studio version?
1: There's a studio version. There's a. I think ESPN put out a comp for Black History Month of like I don't. There's other artists on it. I only got the Gibbs song, but like it's yeah, it's really good. It's definitely checking out, worth checking out if you haven't yet. Um, I also got that Conway Big Ghost Limited, or I should say, I've been listening to it. If it bleeds, it Could be killed. Really good Conway. I. The EPs he does with Big Ghost Limited have been really, really good. Some of his best work, and this one's no exception. I think that's about it. Um, Lola, I want to thank you for joining us today and making such great suggestions for this podcast. You're
3: very welcome. Oh, one thing I forgot that you guys uh, like British humor. One thing I've been watching that's like the funniest thing I've seen in a decade. <laughs> like, it's called Statlet's Flats.
1: No, I haven't seen it, but I do like British comedy.
3: It's on HBO and it's by that, you know, the girl from, um, uh, what we do in the shadows, the vampire vampire thing. It's her and her brother.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's definitely going on list, but, um, yeah, but thank you for joining us. Thank you for making some great suggestions and love to have you back at some point, maybe for time travel or another topic you might feel partial to cinematic wise.
3: Well, thanks for having me. It was fun
1: so that wraps up this episode of the cinematic void podcast coming up uh next Cinemadness movie is going to be march 26th presented by our friends at vinegar syndrome it's a uh, get to see some hollywood boulevard in this movie that's going to be your clue so stick around for that we've got some more episodes coming up on the cinematic void podcast we're going to be talking about a lot of things maybe baseball nick made a suggestion earlier today about baseball
2: i don't even know if i've i don't, I don't really like baseball I just want to talk about blood games.
1: (laughs) Maybe we'll just do a podcast on blood
2: games.
1: (laughs) Until next time, see you in the the void.
0: void. Survival of the fittest has acquired new meaning in our time. Strength has become the index to peace. Space is a place for security. Space begins just 50 miles away. How far it extends, no one can tell. We do not aspire to conquer space. We seek rather to understand it, to become
4: proficient in space to the degree that we have adapted to the seas and to the air.